Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers? The Home Depot has an idea. Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to bring out the most in her patios, walkways, and gardens. Right now, get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants, indoors and outside. Shop our wide selection online and pick up your order in-store and give mom the gift of a beautiful garden. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 at The Home Depot. How doers get more done. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Picasso knows your vacation home is your best home. It's the place that brings family and friends together. It's where you're the best version of yourself. Picasso makes it easy to co-own a luxury vacation home in amazing locations. Listings start at 200K for one-eighth ownership. Picasso does all the work for you. Luxury furnishings, maintenance, billing, scheduling, and more. And you can resell on Picasso's Marketplace anytime, historically for a 10% gain. Visit Picasso to see thousands of listings. That's P-A-C-A-S-O dot com. School of Humans. A warning. This episode of Astray contains graphic subject matter. So please be aware. Solitude makes me appreciate human connection all the more. This is a quote from the nomad and adventurer, Dustin Alexander Shetler's August 20th, 2016 Instagram post. His last Instagram post. Justin, like many seekers called to India, was in search of something more, a higher meaning, deeper connection, a sense of purpose, enlightenment. But we don't know if he ever found it, because Justin vanished, swallowed by the Parvati Valley, nicknamed the Valley of Death, that had taken many before him. For over two decades, around 21 foreigners, drawn to the valley's lush, mountainous landscape in northern India, have gone missing. Some in search of a thrilling trek through the beautiful, but at times volatile Himalayas, and seekers drawn to the valley where the Hindu god Shiva, with the power to destroy and restore worlds, meditated for 3,000 years. This majestic valley is a Shangri-La for Westerners, not only because the hash runs deep here, literally growing wild along the rivers and roads, but it's also the home of the Rainbow Gathering, where hippies seek peace, harmony, love, light, and freedom, away from civilization and surrounded by nature. This sounds idyllic, magical even, but the valley also holds dark secrets and missing foreigners like Justin Alexander Shetler. But was Justin's last adventure meant to be a spiritual one? What was he seeking? And more importantly, was it worth the sacrifice? It's August 20th, 2016. Justin's packing his weathered backpack his chiseled frame is thinner than usual and his back aches from an injury he got at 19 that's been stressed from his high-altitude cave dwelling. The past few weeks, he's been living an idealized life of a nomad, 
drinking Himalayan mountain water from rivers, scavenging edible plants, writing in his journal by candlelight in a damp but sheltering cave. He's been traveling with little food. His only precious possessions are a bullhorn he found in the forest, which is a symbol of Shiva. A long and elegant griffin feather that looks like it was plucked from a mythical animal, and an Indian bansuri, a bamboo flute carved with intricate detail that he uses as a walking stick on his meandering tracks. Justin can live off of almost nothing. It's something he used to impress friends he went camping with back in the States. He's a survivalist, even amidst the, at times, severe conditions of the Parvati Valley. Two days before, he found an abandoned black and brown speckled puppy in Kirganga, an hour trek from his cave, where he soaks his back in the hot springs that are thought to have sacred healing properties. The puppy was wet and shivering, so Justin nestled him under his shirt to keep him warm and took care of the teething pup until he found him a home. Now, Justin packs oats, nuts, raisins, a sleeping pad and bag, some clothing, a wool blanket, rain cover, metal cup, machete, cameras, and power banks. This is what he'll need for the next few days, which will consist of a strenuous three-day trek, then 10 days meditating in spiritual retreat at Montalai Lake, a holy site that at 13,000 feet provides otherworldly views with its barren, all-rock terrain. There's no vegetation or wood to burn at the lake, so like all of Justin's adventures, it's extreme. After the 10 days, the trip will close with a three-day trek back to civilization. This is not an easy journey. You have to earn the breathtaking views and spiritual magnitude of Montalai Lake. And though Justin is primed for a trek like this, it's not one he'll do alone. A kilo of rice, sugar, flour, some tea, a tarp, 10 boxes of cigarettes and matches, all for him. Joining Justin on his holy pilgrimage will be Sat Narayan Rawat. He's a sadhu, which is a Hindu holy man who has devoted his life to Lord Shiva and his spiritual practice, even to the extreme, according to Justin. This sadhu has cut his penis off in full renunciation of lust. I don't know how to casually drop that bomb, but I find it both unsettling and impressively dedicated. Okay, I'm out of my depth with this one, so I'm going to get Inkita's expertise. What are your thoughts on that particular sadhu and his extreme behavior? I mean, that's crazy. He cut off his penis. I mean, my first reaction would be, how? It's, I mean, it sounds bloody, it sounds gory, and I'm just wondering how someone can manage to perform this medical operation upon himself. That's just my journalistic mind speaking. That's totally not where my head went. I was just and then, like, wow, that's dedication. <laughs> and then as a feminist, I would say, well, you know, he's taking responsibility for his feelings instead of blaming women for seducing or tempting men. If you look at Hindu mythology, there is this tale where Sadhu or a Rishi called Vishwamitra was a great Sadhu and he was praying and meditating so well and with such de devotion that one of the gods up there called Indra, he got insecure and he felt like if he meditates so much, he would gain a lot in power. So this god gets insecure and he sends a celestial maiden called Minka down to earth to seduce this sadhu. Minka, 
the celestial maiden sent down to earth by the god Indra, does his bidding and seduces the sadhu Vishwamitra. But then she's cursed and caught in the middle of this envious god and now cursed sadhu. Like most of these mythical tales, the woman is a casualty, which is why Ankita has some respect for a man who's taking control over his carnal urges. She was just assigned this task that she had to do, and you know she was ordered by the god to do it, so she had to do it. But she gets cursed and she gets caught in the middle. So when I hear this story, I feel like okay, at least now men are taking responsibility for their own feelings and their own actions. Sadhu is a general term for all holy men in India, but you'll also hear Baba and Naga used to describe Rawat, the Sadhu Justin befriended. Baba is a common term of address for sadhus, but Naga is more specific. So Nagas are seen as these warrior sadhus who would often be seen in these kummelas or fairs, and they're often naked. Uh, though sometimes when they are dealing with the public, they do wear some kind of clothes around their private parts, uh, and they would often have ash smeared on their bodies or have dreadlocks. So this is just kind of a physical identification of Nagasadhus. There is a black and white photo of Satnarayan Rawat posted on Justin's Instagram from August 16th. He wears a turban and baggy pants. His lanky frame is punctuated with lemon-sized growths on his elbows, wrists, ankles, and knees. The swelling lumps are unsettling to look at in the photo. I've heard stories about the magical powers of these babas. They can see into your soul and know your past and future. They can bless or curse. He spends his life sitting by a fire that never goes out. People visit and ask for blessings and often bring tobacco, mal, what he calls charas hashish marijuana resin, and yes, sometimes a monetary donation. Some of these babas are reported to go months without food, living on pure life energy and hashish. In the photo, Rawat smokes a pipe filled with chillum, a mix of hashish and tobacco. Since Lord Shiva is a big fan of marijuana, the drug is a dietary staple for some sadhus. Rawat shares his chillum with Justin, among other things. He fed me once a day, which was often my only meal. Milk tea, chapati, or cure. A delicious rice pudding made with fresh buffalo milk. They met when Justin was living in seclusion in the caves, and by all accounts, there was a friendly, almost nurturing relationship between them. But when the sadhu asked Justin to join him on a spiritual pilgrimage, Justin had some reservations. He speaks no English besides good and yoga, and I'm not totally sure why I was invited. Without words, he can't teach me any ancient doctrine or explain anything intellectual, but from what I understand, he wants to mentor me in the ways of the sadhu, of Shiva, the first yogi. He follows a strict spiritual routine that I know nothing about, and I am intensely curious. These babas are said to have magical powers from decades of ancient yoga practice, but I really don't know what to expect. Even with that small inkling of doubt, Justin stayed the course. But what he wrote on Instagram, beside the black and white photo of Rawat, is what got me. They are holy men, but wild, and are even above the law in India. Police won't arrest them, even for murder. 
To me, this shouted danger. But it was a warning Justin didn't listen to or want to listen to. I asked Nikita about this. Are all sadhus holy? Or are there scam artists donning those saffron robes? Yeah, I would definitely say that there are sadhus who are fraudsters and are duping people for their own benefit, uh, either to get money out of them or to get access to places that they would otherwise not be allowed in. Do you think these people can be dangerous ultimately? Yeah, they can, especially if they're trusted completely and immediately without any kind of background checks. Justin's final blog entry from August 19th, 2016 is cryptic. I should return mid-September, so if I'm not back by then, don't look for me. He signs off with a winking smiley emoji, which makes me wonder, did he know what he was getting himself into seeking a spiritual edge? Or as someone who pushed his physical edge as a survivalist, accomplished adventurer, and ninja who scaled 700-foot structures, did his quest for a spiritual extreme lead to the ultimate sacrifice, his life? Above Justin's final blog post, there is a haunting video that doesn't match the rest of his entries. This is not one of the daring adventures Justin once captured. It's reflective. In the video, Justin is a solitary man, monk-like, walking barefoot through the mossy, dense forest, setting up camp in his cave, meditating. The spread wings of the hawkish bird tattooed on his chest look like a symbol of freedom the freedom Justin continuously sought out in his life. The music in the video matches the mood. It's eerie. And Rawat, the sadhu, makes an appearance, surrounded by billowing smoke. His shrewd gaze slowly meets the camera. Then, the video fades to black. On August 22, 2016, Justin, Rawat, and a porter the sadhu hired embarked on the strenuous trek to Montalai Lake. The trio reached their destination, and on September 3rd, three Indian hikers reported seeing them at the lake. When they approached them, Justin and the sadhu were arguing. Justin was exhausted and hungry. He said he wanted to descend, but he didn't leave with the hikers. By the end of September, Justin hadn't returned from his trek, and because of his close relationship to his mother and his social media presence, people noticed. Upon hearing about Justin's disappearance, one of the last people to see him, a Russian man who had taken Justin's picture at the trailhead before he embarked on his spiritual trek, messaged a French traveler, Christopher Lee, who was still in the valley and whom Justin had connected with online a year earlier. He asked Lee to check on the sadhu, Rawat, who Justin had embarked on his spiritual crusade with. Lee hiked to Kir Ganga and found Rawat sitting alone in his hut. India is famous for criminal sadhus, and this isn't just now. This goes back, and you can read about it in the 1800s. I mean, many of the old books that I've read on India, and they're like, oh, and you know, the criminal sadhus, and they caught this one and executed him. You know what I mean? It's just like constant criminals dressing up as sadhus. This is Michael Yan a former Green Beret and current combat correspondent. With a thorough knowledge of India's topography and hidden dangers, he's often called on to navigate disappearances like Justin's. Oh, 
And this is his hobby. I'm the world's greatest cannibal hunter. That's my modest opinion. This is one of the most interesting things about Jan, which we'll get into later. But what we're talking about now is his proficiency for manhunting. With Justin, first of all, people contacted me about him. You know, his mother and his best friend were looking for him. And so other people noticed that and they're like, hey, Mike, you know, they know they know me from my work correspondent work. Right. And and they're like, hey, you've talked sometimes about tracking people in India. So uh, some people sent it to me that I uh, checked it out and I looked at it on his online diary. And I started reading part of it and I was like, he sounds like actually a cool guy, actually, except he's got a weakness he's seeking. While I relate to being a seeker, Jan sees it as a liability. And I get this. I mean, someone like Jan, who has been forced to trust his instincts in combat, a life-or-death situation, doesn't have the luxury of curiosity, or trust for that matter. But like me, he also noticed Justin's hesitancy about joining Rawat on this spiritual track. You could tell in the back of his mind that something didn't sit right with him. It's just like one sentence in there somewhere. I don't remember what it said, but I was like, you just said it to yourself. You didn't listen to it. And that little voice says, don't do it. And you're in India, you don't do it. You back off. You know what I mean? But he didn't. He pressed forward. And now, Rowat sat alone in his stone-walled hut, where only a month ago, Justin had shot that eerie video of the sadhu. The French trekker Lee, who was sent to confront Rowat, asked him about Justin, to which Rowat replied, Justin is crazy. Then he ranted about Justin leaving him after meeting some trekkers at the lake, who he headed up the valley with. Lee didn't believe the sadhu, who he knew many referred to as a business baba, who was only out for money, not enlightenment. Lee immediately filed a police report. After studying Justin's blog and social media entries, Michael Yan came to the same conclusion. You need to go to that Naga. Based on everything I'm reading, I would track his ass down. That's your guy. I don't know, obviously, I've never met him. It's just, it's written right there in plain view, right? I mean, it's not in plain, it, I, it's written for me in plain view. And they wanted to hire me. I'm like, I'm busy on some stuff, but I'll advise you as you're over there. So they went over there and they rented a helicopter and got a bunch of men together and had brought a drone out and all kinds of stuff. And then they found his flute. The Indian Ben Suri, or bamboo flute that Justin had been using as a walking stick. I assume if he was as weak as those who saw him said he was, that he would be somewhat dependent on that walking stick to navigate the strenuous track to the lake or from it. So when the flute was found, and he wasn't, that said something. I got a message, like, we found this, we found this flute and some other stuff. I was like, bag it up, man, and treat it like a crime scene. I know you're not FBI or something, but you haven't solved it yet. You know what I mean? You haven't solved it until you've got a body or something. And they got a little overconfident in that. And I was like, you're, you're making a mistake. You need to gather all information at all times, vacuum up everything and preserve everything, photograph everything from 10 different angles, right? When people are talking, get the recorder going because there's little clues that are flying around here and you're not going to be able to figure them out until you've listened to the recording 10 times, right? And long story short, the Indian government got involved because it started getting more press that Naga got arrested. At the valet's small police station, 
Rawat sat in front of Susie Reeb, Justin's mom, who had flown to India October 9th to look for her son who had been missing for over a month. Rawat told Reeb a different story than he had told Lee, the Frenchman, who had reported him to the authorities. Rawat was not a reliable source, which made him look guilty, for either knowing more about Justin's disappearance than he let on, or for murdering him. You may have read the story, right? He ended up being hanged. So, well, that was the guy I told him to go get. Jan is speaking about Rawat, but his account is different from other reports, where Rawat presumably hung himself with his dhoti, the loose pants he wore. Media outlets paint Rawat's death two different ways, as a confession to his guilt or as a response to the immense shame he felt at being pinned for Justin's murder. Either way, this tragedy is heartbreaking because, like Ryan Chambers' parents, Reeb doesn't have any answers around her son's disappearance. As we've seen, Justin skated this line between adventure and harm effortlessly in his life. He conquered dangerous situations with an ease that's envious to many of us, who only wish we could dare so greatly. But Justin is still human and susceptible to danger, which is something that unfortunately found him in India. Michael Yan, the manhunter, who helped with the investigation of Justin's disappearance, had a respect for Justin because he too is drawn to danger and has been tracking people who deeply understand what enlightenment means to them. What's the cost? Eating another human. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com iHeart. That's LifeLock.com iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org.
The Home Depot wants every mom to have their own outdoor oasis this Mother's Day. Whether that be a new space to relax or a beautiful garden upgrade, at The Home Depot, you can give mom a gift that's as unique as she is with a stylish and comfortable place to entertain or relax for the mom who does it all. And with convenient delivery, you won't have to stress over getting it to her either. Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers for the mom who's great with gardening? Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to bring out the most in her patios, walkways, and gardens with the Home Depot's Mother's Day savings event happening now. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants indoors and outside. Start your Mother's Day shopping and saving today by checking out the Home Depot's extensive selection online at homedepot.com or directly in-store near you with convenient pickup and delivery options. See homedepot.com slash delivery for details. The Home Depot, how doers get more done. Once you've tracked enough of them, it's as easy as spotting a Catholic priest, you know what I mean? Michael Yan is talking about his ability to spot an agori, or his fond nickname for them, cannibals. He's not wrong. The Agori are sadhus that engage in post-mortem rituals, which includes cannibalism. Jan told me about a time when he was helping a former Israeli special forces officer, Egal Zor, find a missing Israeli who had presumably drowned in the Ganges. But they came across a different body. And someone who had their sights on it. Trigger warning, this is where it gets graphic. He had found this body and it's naked. Out of all the hundreds of bodies I've seen there, none were naked. And the ones that were close to naked, they were clearly in the river for a very long time. Like there was almost like their hands would be missing. Always you would see hands and feet would first be missing because the dogs would get the hands and the feet. And, and sometimes they would be headless. But this one looked really fresh and it had no pubic hair. It was a male, it had no armpit hair. And it looked like the head was shaved partially and it had a wire saw in the head, right? Like somebody was cutting into the head with the wire saw. It looks like somebody has hacked out its abdomen. It's like really eviscerated, like something's wrong here. I said, Egal, that looks like a human sacrifice. The police are right there. The body's there. It looks like it's been murdered. It's got what appears to be contusions. I didn't see any knife marks on the forearms or anything like that. No bullet wounds. And this Agori comes out. Now, the Agori's feet are in the river. They actually think that they can meditate beside the Ganges River and make a body come to them. So think how this plays into his potential psyche. He sees white Israeli dude swim out into the river and come back with a body. I was like, well, I prayed for a body to come, and there it is, right? And so it's like, you know, uh, pizza delivery here almost, right? And the Agori reaches down into the river. This body is naked. The guts are hanging out. The intestines are hanging out. It looks like it's been hacked open and not just slit, but like missing part of the ribs and stuff. Like a jack-o'-lantern top is taken off, you know what I mean? And the top is missing, and all the guts are exposed. Uh, you know, flies are landing on a body because you can see them in the photos. And he picks a stone from the river, from the Ganges, and he puts it on the pubic bone of the body, just above the penis, right? And and then he reaches down and he picks part of the foreskin off and eats it right in front of the police. Egal Zur, this, you know, former special forces officer in the IDF, he's like, then my adrenaline just went. 
you know, I've been in India many, many times for many years, and I've never seen something like this. What was this man? What is he doing? And I was like, well, that's clearly an agori. It doesn't take five months of study or six months of study to spot one. I can teach you in like, you know, two hours, right? And then the, the agori picked up his stick and everything, and he disappeared into the jungle. This story is so out there. When Jan first told it to me, I didn't believe him. But when he broke down the beliefs of the Agori, why they do what they do, it made more sense. They believe a god or the gods created everything. And the, a god or the gods is perfect. Therefore, everything is perfect in the world. Therefore, if you're disgusted by anything, you're disgusted by God, and you should seek to overcome everything that disgusts you. Seek to overcome the emotion of disgust. You can see how seeking to overcome the emotion of disgust would lead to some pretty vile behavior, which according to Jan, it definitely does. I mean, they'll literally sleep with a dead dog for until the, as a pillow, it, as it rots, day after day, week after week, until it's gone, maggots and everything, right? Carrying it on their shoulder, walking down the road, dead dog, right? You know, set it beside them while they're eating, you know? They believe that, for instance, Prostitutes and menstrual blood are bad, right? And so they'll, like, have sex with a, a menstruating prostitute on a corpse in a burning place or in a cemetery, right? Like, stacking disgust on top of disgust. And just so you know how to spot an agori. They always carry a human skull to drink from or eat from, or they use it for begging for alms. They use a human femur as a horn, beep, right? And uh, and they use baby skulls and baby skins for a damaru drum. A damaru is those sorts of drums where it's got, you know, you hold it in your hand and you can twist your wrist, bing, 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 bing. You know what I mean? Often they'll be wearing black. They'll have, you know, dreadlocks typically, uh, which a lot of people do, but they'll often be wearing a garland of bones, human bones, They've got a certain look. I know. All of this sounds pretty outrageous. And I'm sure, like I did, you're questioning it. I mean, rationalizing cannibalism isn't easy. But these Agori consider their post-mortem rituals holy. They live among India's cremation sites where Lord Shiva and Kali Ma, whom they worship, are said to dwell. Their faces and bodies painted in ash they collect the remains of the humans disposed there, using them in rituals to reach spiritual enlightenment. These rituals do include the taboo act of cannibalism, but they also ascribe to a combination of marijuana, alcohol, and meditation to bring them to a disconnected state of heightened awareness. There's no doubt that the Agori practices are radical, but are they dangerous? Jan makes a correlation between the Agori and those who have gone missing in India. There's photos of missing people all over the place here for, like, missing tourists and stuff. And it says, even in the Lonely Planet guidebook, it said, like, two to three people go missing every three to four months, Westerners. And nobody, it's hardly ever in the news, right? And it's like it's covered up or something like that. And I was like, wow, this is so weird. Based on just other things that I was picking up, I was like, I wonder if they're related to the, some of these people that are missing. This is an extreme theory. But as you can tell, Jan is an extreme sort of guy. But if this theory is true, why, besides the cannibalism factor, would the Agori want to go after Westerners? Obviously, Jan has an opinion on this, too. You know, Shakti is the universal feminine energy in Hinduism, right? And a good 
analogy to Shakti is just money. You can be born with Shakti. You can earn it, lose it. It can be stolen from you. And they believe some people know how to make Shakti better than others. And for instance, children, they believe have a lot of Shakti because they didn't use their Shakti yet because they're young. And they also believe that Caucasians have a lot of Shakti because that explains partially why Caucasians are so rich and are able to travel around the world, right? And so they would prefer to sacrifice somebody with Shakti, a lot of Shakti, because they'll get that Shakti. So they're not only robbing you for your watch, they're robbing you for your Shakti. We've spoken about the destabilizing dangers of India, or the idea that something ominous is lurking beneath the spiritual mystique, waiting, ready to pounce on an unsuspecting foreigner, sacrificing their mind or their body. If this threat were personified, it would be an agori, or at least the kind of agori that Michael Yan has described. But I'll be honest, these stories felt like larger-than-life tales to me. So obviously, I pulled Ankita in to ask if she believes these agori pose as much of a threat to Western tourists as Michael claims. Ankita has never reported on the agori, but this is what she knows from her research and from colleagues who have. I would say that agoris, the minute you talk of them, you immediately think of people who practice tantric vidya or knowledge of the tantra. I always assumed anything related to tantra was sexual, but Ankita clarifies what tantra vidya is for me. Very strong, possibly even dark powers and worshipping gods like Kali or Shiva who are associated with very strong, almost rage-like emotions and uh, therefore it is said that their powers are destructive. And therefore it is said that if you are an Aghori and if you are trying to develop your powers, then you have to be very careful because not only can you destroy others, you can also uh, destroy yourself. Do you think that these Aghori have anything to do with people that have gone missing in India? I would not make a correlation there, concluding that because Aghoris have rituals around corpses, they're more likely to kill or commit other crimes. That's like watching a mystery movie and saying that the most dangerous looking person must be the murderer. But, but, <laughs> that is so and, spot on. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the movie, it's usually the most innocent person, right? Seemingly innocent. But since agoris have to do with religion and rituals, and religious people are not supposed to cause harm, they're supposed to be holy and sacred, they are trusted more easily. To take undue advantage of that trust and devotion, somebody may adopt the guise of an agori and indulge in crimes. So... Just because the Igori worship something taboo in our culture doesn't necessarily make them dangerous to us. But Ankita explains why it might be terrifying for a Westerner to witness one of the Igori's ritualistic acts. It's just an extension of the fear that comes with seeing something that is not seen commonly around you or seeing something that you do not understand. I asked Nkita to fact-check Michael's stat that two to three Westerners go missing every three to four months in India, which she couldn't find any specific data on. But she did say, compared to the States, it's easy for Westerners to get visas in India. So the Indian government isn't as concerned with tracking foreigners, which means it's a country where someone could easily fall off the grid. 
The American Agori Gary Stevenson was one of those people. He disappeared in India by choice. But when Jan heard about him, Gary didn't have a choice. There was nothing stopping Jan from seeing for himself this Texan turned cannibal. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. The Home Depot wants every mom to have their own outdoor oasis this Mother's Day. Whether that be a new space to relax or a beautiful garden upgrade, at The Home Depot, you can give mom a gift that's as unique as she is with a stylish and comfortable place to entertain or relax for the mom who does it all. And with convenient delivery, you won't have to stress over getting it to her either. Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers for the mom who's great with gardening? Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to Bring out the most in our patios, walkways, and gardens with the Home Depot's Mother's Day Savings Event happening now. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants indoors and outside. Start your Mother's Day shopping and saving today by checking out the Home Depot's extensive selection online at homedepot.com or directly in-store near you with convenient pickup and delivery options. See homedepot.com slash delivery for details. The Home Depot, how doers get more done. Picasso knows your vacation home is your best home. It's the place that brings family and friends together. It's where you're the best version of yourself. Picasso makes it easy to co-own a luxury vacation home in amazing locations. Listings start at 200K for one-eighth ownership. Picasso does the hard parts for you. Luxury furnishings, maintenance, billings, scheduling, and more with a home management team that provides support before, during, and after your stay so you can focus on the relaxing, hosting, and making memories with family and friends. And you can resell on Picasso's Marketplace anytime, historically for a 10% gain. With Picasso, you can stop saying someday and start building family traditions today in a vacation home you own and revisit time after time. Visit Picasso.com today to see thousands of luxury vacation home listings. That's P-A-C-A-S-O dot com. Michael Yan is a hero, legitimately. He served our country in the military and then as a combat correspondent, reporting from war zones in Iraq and Afghanistan. There is a moving picture he took of a U.S. Army major cradling an Iraqi girl. She's so small, she looks like a doll in his arms. His face is obscured by her wet hair, her fragile body wrapped in a blood-soaked blanket. This child, Farah, died on the helicopter ride to the hospital. It was a car bomb that killed her, one of the many bombs Jan experienced at war. And Farah was one of the many children he saw die. This would do a number on anyone. He still has detailed nightmares about suicide bombings. But he wakes up, puts his blinders on, and gets back to work. He's now focused on fighting the Chinese Communist Party. My point is, Jan's trained military, an instinctive manhunter, 
And when he set his sights on tracking down Gary Stevenson, or Gary the Cannibal, as Jan fondly calls him, there was no doubt he would find him. I was able to catch Jan on a car trip he was making through the Redwoods, so the audio isn't great, but Jan filled me in on why Gary, a seemingly normal, hippie-ish spiritual dude, ended up in India, eating people. Mm, Gary's more like war, kill, hate. Not all hippies are nice guys, right? Like Charles Manson, hippie, you know what I mean? Gary Stevenson, a descendant of Robert Louis Stevenson, author of Treasure Island, grew up in Texas in the 1950s in a leave-it-to-beaver household. At two years old, he got polio, which left him with a shriveled leg that, according to Jan, looked like bone with some skin attached to it. Throughout his life, Gary searched for a way to heal his leg, but he was constantly let down by different ideologies or methods. Gary was set on a spiritual path at 15, when his mother gave him a copy of Autobiography of a Yogi by Paramhans Yoganand. I've read the Bible and the Quran and Autobiography of a Yogi, and they're all promising immortality. They're all promising miracle cures. They're all promising, you know, uh, touched by the guru and now you're healed. And so they're all, they're all promising the same stuff. One of the big things, a religion that's going to last has to promise immortality. If you don't promise immortality, you're not going to get a lot of people joining up. Gary was influenced by the spiritual truths delivered in Autobiography of a Yogi and some other themes as well. In the book Autobiography of a Yogi, what does he do? He runs away. The, you know, the child runs away, goes up to northern India, which is where Gary went. Gary eventually ended up in northern India. But when he ran away from home as a teen due to a toxic relationship with his father, he bounced around, living in Haight-Ashbury in the 60s, then Taylor Camp, a hippie refuge in Kauai where people were naked more than not, and then a spiritual pilgrimage made by many seekers at the time. This is Hippieville 1960s, right? This is guru-seeking, run off on the hippie trail through Iran, through uh, Afghanistan, through Pakistan, India, Nepal, and that was the big hippie trail, right? And then some would end up in Thailand. But through all of his travels, which centered mostly on California and Hawaii, Gary kept coming back to India. He just kept going west, west until he was east, right? And it was the same way, it's clear with his religious extremes. It was like the frog in the water. Things clearly got more and more, this is normal, this is normal, until you know he's finally eating people. I mean, you know, was so he really he, eating people? Come on. It's straight up. You can go to you can go to Varanasi right now, and and I am like ninety percent certain that you could find somebody probably within the first twelve hours that knew him. Because I've interviewed a lot of them. I've got him on video and I've got him on audio. He was he was eating people right in front of people. It was like nobody nobody's gonna stop you in Varanasi from doing it. But that's so if you want to become if you want to become a cannibal, you can get on an airplane at Atlanta Airport right now. In 48 hours from now, you can be eating people in Varanasi, and nobody gonna say shit. You're, you're insane. I'm not gonna do that. <laughs> you're gonna do it because you're gonna do it. I know you're gonna do it. You're gonna do it because you have to do it to make sure it's real. Okay, I go in deep for a story, but there is a definitive line here for me. But that tightrope I've spoken about with enlightenment. That thin line between healing and harm. I'd say that Gary crossed over into harm. But Michael sees the Agori and their rituals differently. I'll take you to India when this pandemic is over. And you'll, you'll meet Agoris. And I guarantee you, you're going to question yourself. Is this guy really crazy? Or is this just his religion? Because this religion goes back at least 600 years, right? And 
is it irrational? Is it irrational? When you look, I'm talking about not from our perspective as Americans, especially from the East Coast, as I am from. So for me, it's completely radical and insane, right? Yeah. But in the context of things I've seen around the world, is it insane? Nope, not even close. Think about it. Famines are constant in Asia. Since for, there's been thousands of famines. Nobody could ever possibly count them all, right? And when it comes to people that starve to death or people that die in survival famine situations, one of the number one reasons why some people survive and some don't is they overcome taboos more quickly. You can have the biggest famine in the world. If there's two people left, the Agori is going to be the one that's left standing. I, this is just my theory. I don't know where it came from. But the ability to overcome disgust pretty much, you know, gives you an insurance policy against a lot of disasters. Jan formed a friendship with Gary, one where Jan had to continually look over his shoulder to make sure he wasn't going to be attacked, but ironically, also one of respect. When Jan negotiated Gary's release from prison after he tried to stab a man and was charged with a visa violation, oh, and a woman's arm was found in his hut, though he wasn't charged for that. Gary offered to give up cannibalism for him. But at this point, Jan doesn't know if that ever happened. After getting him out of jail in India, Jan brought Gary back to the States for a bit. But Gary was able to obtain another 10-year India visa, so he flew back and yet again fell off the grid. On Jan's website, he has copies of Gary Stevenson's passport and license, along with photographs that prove that Gary the Cannibal was not just an urban legend, but a man. As you've witnessed, like Gary, Michael Jan is a memorable character, and his stories are intense and sensational, which is something I considered when deciding whether or not to add them to this episode, and something I confronted Jan about. I'll be honest with you, a lot of the stories with the cannibals are so extreme, I just continuously want to ground it so that people can actually be on board and not be like, is this really real? Because um, it is. It's, yeah. it's so out there, dude. It, oh, it's real. An hour after this conversation with Jan, I read about American movie star Army Hammer, who was called out by an ex who said the actor told her he wanted to break her rib, then barbecue and eat it. Hammer allegedly asked another partner if he could cut off her toe and keep it as a souvenir. I told Jan I'd found his next cannibal to hunt down, but he declined and said even Gary the Cannibal would think Army Hammer was a creep. Apparently, there is a line in cannibalism, too. In the next episode of Astray, I'll be reporting on someone whose story has affected me more than any I've covered. And because of a connection I made while researching the story, one that's ultimately made me question this entire podcast. Like, I don't know. I just feel really, I feel really torn about it. And even writing his episodes really hard. I'll share that and more on the next episode of Astray. Many of the logistical facts that I found around Justin Shetler Alexander's disappearance came from a thorough article that Harley Rustad wrote for Outside Magazine in 2018. Rustad will soon be releasing a book on this called Lost in the Valley of Death. Astray is a production of School of Humans and iHeartRadio. 
Today's episode of Astray, Justin Alexander Shetler, was produced, written, and narrated by me, Caroline Slaughter. Ankita Anand is my co-producer, and Gabby Watts is our supervising producer. With special thanks to our voiceover, Van Gunter. Astray was sound produced by Toon Welders, scored by Jason Shannon, and mixed by Harper Harris. Executive producers are Elsie Crowley, Brian Lavin, and Brandon Barr. Thanks for listening. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. What if we told you about a major breakthrough on awesome savings on all-inclusive beach vacays? OMG, this could break the case. Case? I'm talking about CheapCaribbean.com. It's full of hot savings. At CheapCaribbean.com, score an extra $175 off site-wide on vacations of four nights or more now through June 3rd. Swim up bar in Punta Cana or dip your toes in the sand on the shores of Cancun. We gotta take this show on the road. Start at CheapCaribbean.com.